0: Have you turn tonight uh, to a different gospel? I've been preaching a series through Mark, but I want to take a little break tonight. I want to go to Luke's gospel, and we're going to focus on a very interesting theme tonight. When Ole quit farming and moved, he discovered that he was the only Lutheran in his town. It was all these Catholics living in this town, and the nearest Lutheran church was miles and miles away, and so. Uh, as, as you know back in the day if you were a Roman Catholic you did not eat meat on Friday. How many knew that? And so that's why a lot of restaurants would serve only fish on Friday. And so but Oli, who was not a Catholic he was a good Lutheran boy he would have an amazing barbecue and every Friday night he would drop on a big steak. And that smell would just kind of move through the community. And it was a great temptation to all of his neighbors. So finally, some of them got together and confronted Oli and they said, listen, you're the only Lutheran in town. There's not a Lutheran church in miles. We think you should join our church and become a Catholic. Old Oli thought about it for a while, and he said, you know, you guys are right. Yeah, I think I'll do that. And so he talked to the priest, and they made the arrangement. And so there came the day when the priest had Oli kneel in front of the church. He put his hands on Oli's head and said, Oli, you were born a Lutheran. You were raised a Lutheran. And now he sprinkled some incense over him, and he said, you are now a Catholic. Both Oli and his neighbors were delighted with the great service but the following Friday, the aroma of barbecue beef was still coming from Oli's yard. And the neighbors went to have a little chat with Oli to straighten him out and tell him, you know, you can only eat fish on Friday. But as they neared the fence, something strangely familiar was heard in their ears. He heard, they heard Oli saying, you were born a beef, you were raised a beef. And now as he sprinkled a little salt over the meat, he says, you are now a fish. Now, how many know saying a few words does not change the nature of a person, you know? And that's the point of that little story. Now, one of the greatest elements to bring about transformational change comes when we engage with God in prayer. You know, a lot of us have probably seen, you know, the atomic blast, you know, a nuclear blast, an atomic blast where there's that mushroom cloud, and just the destructive force of an atomic blast, right? We've seen that. I want to just say to you tonight, that's not the greatest power on earth. You know, the greatest power on earth is when people get on their knees and begin to engage God. And I'm speaking figuratively. I mean, you can get on your knees. You can stand. You can sit. You can lie down. It's not the posture, the position. But when we begin to engage God in prayer, we release a power greater than an atomic blast. And that's what I want us to understand today that we would get this in our hearts and minds. You know, so often we could say, yes, we agree that prayer is important. Most of us, especially if we grew up in the church, we've been told, you know, we need to pray, we need to pray. And it's very important, it's very powerful, and some of us have had amazing experiences in times of prayer. But the problem still remains, knowing all of this stuff, why don't we pray more? And then an interesting question, why do we struggle with this thing called prayer? And I think one of the reasons why is because there's an opposition to it. I think there's a spiritual opposition to this thing called prayer. And many of us we get busy doing other things, and if we find that sometimes prayer becomes the last resort You know, we we get into a situation, we try to solve it, we look to people to help us, and eventually we think, oh yes, I should pray about this. And generally, our prayer life really escalates when we're in a time of crisis. Isn't it amazing how we can really become more effective prayers? And the greater the pressure, the greater the crisis, the more we start crying out to God. And you know, I've been a pastor for a long time, we've had prayer meetings for years, and you know, we still have a prayer meeting, it actually is happening simultaneous to our evening service. But what I've noticed about prayer, and when I've led the prayer meetings, it doesn't matter, you know, we'll have times of prayer and fasting. The majority of the church does not come out to prayer meetings. Isn't that amazing? You know, we all, we'll all agree, we can all nod, and as Christians, yeah, we can think about it, but we don't really engage in it. And so I want to talk a little bit about why is that. You know, why, why do we, we wait until crisis brings this out into our lives. And then I've noticed that people who get in crisis, they're in the prayer meetings, they're in the prayer meetings, and when the crisis is over, they're gone. No, I've I've observed this. So I'm not telling you something that I, I haven't experienced. You know, for most of us, as I've said, prayer usually is the last resort. When life brings us something beyond our control and ability to handle, that's when we become more serious about this thing called prayer. But that certainly wasn't the pattern of life in Jesus, in his life. Prayer was a pattern. It was a habit. And I believe that Jesus actually, you know, is an example for us. Jesus prayed before the great crisis of his life rather than praying during the crisis of his life. And because of that, I think that's a reason why he was victorious, even in the most difficult moments of his life, whereas we often fail in our time of crisis You know, we need to be praying before the crisis comes so that we actually are not reacting to the crisis, but that we are actually responding in the right way. You, You remember the disciples, Jesus had told them, Listen, you know, I'm about to be crucified. You know, you need to watch and pray. They went into the garden. Jesus was praying, and he said to them, Watch and pray. And what were they doing? They were asleep. And so when the moment of crisis came, Jesus stood up and he embraced the crisis and he handled it correctly. But what happened to the rest of them? They all fled. They all ran away. They all faltered. They all failed in the moment of testing and crisis because they had not prayed. Now, Luke records for us in his gospel seven times when Jesus prayed before a major crisis in his life. That's interesting. And so today we're going to focus in on one of them that reveals to us something about both the nature of Jesus and also challenges us through his example how we need to develop into a praying people. And this is going to be a focal point in our church, and maybe you don't know that, but we're moving in this direction. matter of fact, we're going to, I'm going to share next week, we're going to introduce a new staff member and two, actually two new staff members and some of the changes that we're making in our church, and one of them, we're actually staffing someone to engage and lead us in this thing called prayer, because I'm so convinced this is a critical element in the church and in the Christian life. So we're going to look at this transformation experience that Jesus went through. And I think there's a number of insights there regarding the nature of prayer that comes from this incident in the life of Jesus. And today, I want to look at three of those incidences. And the first one is just simply uh, that this is where transformation is actually revealed when we're praying. In other words, uh, it was while Jesus was praying that he was changed. Let's look at Luke 9, 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James. That's kind of the inner circle there. And they went with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, you know, when you read the Gospel of Luke, it really brings this idea that Jesus prayed. You know, and Jesus prayed, it said. Or Jesus went aside to pray. Or Jesus, you know, left people to pray. And even though the great demands of his life and ministry, Jesus took time to spend all nights in prayer. Now, this is Jesus. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, but that's Jesus, Pastor. You know, obviously he's better than we are. And you know, I'm going to tell you what we tend to do. We tend to deny in our minds that Jesus is a human being. You see, we have it so locked into our heads that Jesus is God, that he's above us and beyond us, that we could never do what he's doing. But let me point out something to us. Jesus is actually our model for life. He is our example. He is our pattern for life. Wow, that's a challenge. How many know, unless you're behaving exactly like that pattern, you probably still have room for growth. Does that that include anybody in the room? We probably have a little room for growth then, if Jesus is the pattern. You know, there may be a little bit of a drop-off between Jesus and me. And so let's take a look at this wonderful example of Jesus in prayer. And how can we begin to follow this beautiful pattern of life? Uh, I think Jesus now, it says in verse 29, As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Do you know that when we are engaged in prayer, when we are in communion with God, that is the time where we change the most? That is the moment where God can do the greatest work in our lives. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you tonight that God wants to bring about transformation in our lives, but it can only happen when we're in his presence. You know, we have that happen to some degree when we come on Sunday. We have a little bit of that. But what I'm trying to do is help us understand that if we live a life of prayer, if we become habitual prayers, if we live a life daily in communion with God, then this beautiful transformation will begin to occur in our lives, that we will become something other than what we were. Isn't that great? You know? And how many of you here say, I'm up for some growth in my life. I'm up for some change in my life. You know, sometimes we listen to a sermon like this, and go, you know, I'm so glad you're preaching that pastor. It really applies to so-and-so. You know, how many times have you ever been in a service that happens, and you're listening to the sermon, and you're going, I'm not relating to this, or else you're thinking, you know, it's very convicting, but you're so glad that you are already arrived, you've already passed that point, and you're, thank God so-and-so is in church today, and I'm glad they're sitting here listening to this, they really need that. Isn't that true? Don't we get like that sometimes? Yeah. You know, I can still remember back a number of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and the minister was preaching, and I'm listening to this message, and he was speaking on bitterness, and I thought, man, I'm so glad, you know, that that applies to somebody else. You know, I'm not bitter, right? I don't have any issues. You know, I got everything correct. I don't have any unforgiveness. I don't have any of these problems, and he's talking about all this stuff. And then he did something at the end of the service really messed me up, you know, You know, because the whole time, I'm not relating to the sermon. I don't believe it applies to me. I'm not getting anything from it. You know, I'm listening. I'm hearing it. And then all of a sudden, he says, I want you to turn to the person next to you. And the moment you turn, he says, I want you to think of the first person that comes to your mind and say to your neighbor, I need to pray that God will help me to deal with my bitterness towards this person. He says, I just want you to turn right now. And the first person that came to my mind was my father. And I thought, no, I don't have any bitterness towards him. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit said, yes, you do. You see, let me just say something to us. You know, as Christians, we think, well, yeah, I've dealt with that. But we're like onions. You know, there's layers to us. You know, and, and many times we do, do deal with it. You know, we, you know we, we address something in our life, and we think, hey, I've addressed it. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit peels another layer, and we go, oh, my goodness. And you know, and I turned to this person next to me and I mentioned my dad's name. The Spirit of God came on me. And many of you may not know me that well, but I am not a highly emotional person. You know, my daughter says, Dad, I've hardly ever seen you cry. I rarely ever get that emotional. But right then and there, the Spirit of God came on me and I began weeping. I couldn't control it. I actually sobbed for 30 minutes. That is not my behavior. What was happening? You see, I grew up, there was a lot of dysfunction in her home, there was a lot of brokenness, there was a lot of hurt, a lot of disappointment, a lot of expectations that were promised, never realized. There was all kinds of garbage inside of me. And as I'm, you know, listening to this message, I feel like there's no odd I've already forgiven my dad. But you know what? Deep down inside there was another layer. And the Holy Spirit put his finger on it. And God began to process some of the pain, the sorrow, the brokenness, the anger, the frustration. All of that stuff comes sobbing out of me for 30 minutes. You know, everybody else, you know, had been leaving. They were fellowshipping. You know, the sermon that didn't apply was the one that was killing me now as I was addressing this broken place in my life. Why am I saying all of that? Because, you know, it's so easy to dismiss what God wants to say to us. And we think, you know, I'm so glad this applies to someone else. Listen. Unless we're exactly like Jesus, this message is going to apply to you. Because I can honestly say that we can all probably grow in our prayer life. I could probably honestly say that we're a long ways from becoming the kind of prayer that Jesus was. And I'm going to just tell you this, that prayer is extremely, extremely powerful. As a matter of fact, it's as in Matthew and Mark, as they're sharing this text, they use the word, and Jesus was not just changed, but he was transfigured. You know, that word means a change in appearance. And it comes from within, and it gives us the English word metamorphosis. Now, when you think of that word metamorpho or metamorphosis, what do you think of? You think of the little caterpillar who's gorging himself on anything green, And all of a sudden he gets to the state where he begins to metabolize and he cocoons in a shell. And then all of a sudden something is happening. He's actually dying. His creaturely nature is being changed. And as he is dying there's a transformation that happens in that cocoon until finally this earthly creature comes out of the cocoon as a beautiful heavenly creature that can fly a butterfly. How many think that's quite a transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly? How many think that's, pretty tra- how many think that's an amazing transformation? You know, how many here say, you know what, I'm a candidate pastor. I would love for God to take me, my broken nature, my hurts, my disappointments, all the th- garbage in my life, and begin to do this cocooning experience in my life and bring about this amazing transformation that all of a sudden I become Christ-like. I become patient, gentle, kind, loving, compassionate, understanding, unselfish. How many think, well, that's not describing me perfectly, you know? (laughs) But that's describing Jesus perfectly. How many say, I'm open to that. I'm open to that kind of change in my life. And so what I'm talking about tonight is the vehicle that brings you to that place where God can bring about that kind of transformation in your life and in my life as well. You know, there's a process of death that leads to new life, a movement from an earthly to a heavenly one. It's amazing that this occurred while Jesus was praying. How many times was Jesus alone, and his glory was expressed for only the angels to see? You know, I I was thinking about that. I wonder, was this the only time this happened? That Jesus was changed in prayer? This is the only time we have recorded. This is the only time someone saw it. But I wonder how many times on the mountaintops when he was talking to his Father in heaven that the glory of God began to emanate from him. And Jesus was transfigured. I don't know. You know, it's just a supposition. It may have never happened as far as I know. But you know what? I let my imagination go because Jesus was a person of deep prayer. And This had a lasting impact on Peter and John. Peter later writes in his second epistle, he said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories, but we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice and from heaven when we were with him, Now, I could stop right there and you could say, well, that happened once in his baptism. Do you know the disciples actually were chosen as apostles because they were with him from his baptism onward? And this is what happened at his baptism. The voice from heaven was heard. But let me tell you, Peter now clarifies and says that this happened on the sacred mountain he's now defining the experience this happened when we went up on this mountain called now we call it the Mount of Transfiguration the place where Jesus was changed in front of their eyes it left an indelible impression on Peter's heart and mind when he saw the transformation of Jesus there while he was praying As a matter of fact John writes in his let in his gospel in chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his... His what? His glory. We saw the glory of the only begotten, uh, the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, prayer is the key to our own personal transformation. This word for change is found. This word metamorpho is found two other times in the New Testament. The other time, uh, and I believe it can only happen as we're in the presence of God. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is free, there is freedom. We like that. You know, we actually sing a song about that. You know, all of us love that. Oh, this great freedom we have in Christ. But you know what? I like the next verse. Because the next verse tells us what this freedom is all about. It says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. You remember, you know, the context of this passage, he's talking about Moses. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, he radiated the glory of God. So Moses covered his face. Now why did Moses cover his face? You know, it wasn't because he didn't want anybody to see his glory. You know why he covered his face? Because it was a fading glory. He didn't want to see that glory, people see that glory diminish in his life. That's why he covered his face. Read that very carefully. It it brings that out. But he says, but we who with unveiled faces, in other words, we're not veiling our faces. We can anticipate that this glory is not gonna fade. That's the point of the passage. Are being transformed, there's that word, into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, as you and I are in the presence of God, and that's what prayer really is, being in communion with God is we're in his presence God's glory comes upon us. And we begin to reflect the glory of God. How many know the moon has no light? And yet every night we look at the moon, we see this beautiful, shining moon. You know, you know, how many notice that? You know what the moon is doing? It's reflecting the sun. And that's why you have a full moon, no moon, half moon, quarter moon. It's because what you're seeing is, the moon is on axis rotating around and we're only seeing it as it's being impacted by the sun. Is that amazing? And so the moon is reflecting the glory of the sun. And as you and I are in God's presence, what are we doing? We're reflecting the glory of the sun. Is that amazing? What are you? A quarter moon? A half moon? A full moon? Or no moon? You know what I mean? Like when the moon is just like, you don't see it because it's not being reflecting of the sun. And sometimes as Christians, that's what's happening in our lives. We're not really reflecting. You know, the reality of his presence comes as we are in communion with him. Now, there's been a growing conviction in my own heart to the reality of this truth that it's only as we look to God and pray that we can be changed and have a real and lasting impact on the lives of other people. You know, a great uh, pastor of years gone by, a man by the name of Ian e. Bounds, he wrote on prayer. Anybody ever read anything about Ian e. Bounds? Okay, one person. Uh, probably don't even print these books anymore. I have a whole bunch of them. It says, uh, he, he writes, Elijah, without his praying, would have neither record nor place in the pages of Scripture. How many of you know that's probably true? If he had not been a praying person, we probably would never have heard of this guy. But Elijah, the Bible says in the book of James, chapter five, was a man of like passions. In other words, he was just a human being like us. And when he prayed, the Bible says it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and it rained. Remember that story? How many remember that it's from the Old Testament? Okay, it says his life would have been cowardly. As a matter of fact, if we want to have moral courage, we're going to have to be people of prayer. Do you know what Elijah did? He actually went up against 850 false prophets on a mount called Carmel and confronted their behavior and confronted the nation in front. It was 850 prophets to one. He had the king and all the people standing there, and he said to them, if God is God, then worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. He put a challenge. He said, you guys, offer up your sacrifices and see which God answers. And by the way, Baal was the God of lightning. Baal was the storm God. You know, he was the fire God, in a sense. So he, took, he went right to their strong suit. He said, I'm taking you guys on. And he went before them. How many here have a hard time standing up in our culture today as a Christian and saying, you know what, I'm standing for God today. I'm standing for what's right today in the midst of a a culture that's turning its back on God and celebrating everything that's evil. It's kind of hard to stand for God. How are you going to have that kind of courage to stand up in in a culture like ours? Well, Elijah stood up because he was a man of prayer. He knew God. He was a man who knew the word of God. He knew the the ways of God. He understood the covenant of God. He understood that if Israel sinned and turned its back on God, that God said one of the consequences would be drought. And so Elijah called out to God and said, listen, we have turned our backs on you, Lord. Enact your covenant with us. And the Bible says when he prayed, it did not rain for three and a half years. And it was during this time of judgment on the land that Elijah confronted the people with their sin. And finally, it says there was a time when Elijah came before the king and before the people and before these false prophets. And when Elijah prayed, what happened? Lightning, I believe, came down from heaven. I believe God, whom the Bible says is a consuming fire, consumed that altar. Can you imagine how dramatic that was? I mean, he, he, he's a I think Elijah's a great actor. I mean, he had dug a trench. He had poured all this water on there. The Bible says that fire came down and, you know, consumed the sacrifice It you know, consumed the stones. I mean, it was a big, spectacular deal. This is better than fireworks on Canada Day. Believe me. This was a major thing. The people screamed out, you know, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Elijah said, Okay. I want you to deal with all this evil. Destroy these evil, false people who have led you astray. He addressed the evil in his nation. Can you imagine how courageous you had to be to do that? How could he do that? Because he was a man who knew his God. He was a man who was in communion with God. He was a man who prayed. Without Elijah praying, the Jordan would never have yielded to the stroke of his mantle. Without his praying, the chariot would not have swooped down out of heaven and gave him a ride back into heaven. Isn't that amazing? You know, you talk about the ultimate ride right? This is better than a carnival experience. This is better than riding in any vehicle, better than riding in anything. I mean, no kidding. The Spirit of God drove chariots down and picked up Elijah and took him off into the presence of God. Wow! How many say that would have been an amazing experience? You know, Elijah was looking at this. Some of the prophets were standing on a cliff looking at this, watching what in the world happened to Elijah, right? Then we could think of people like Paul and Luther and Wesley What would these chosen ones of God be without the distinguishing and controlling element of prayer? They were leaders for God in mighty prayer. They were not leaders because of brilliancy in thought, exhaustlessness and energy, or magnificent culture and native endowment. What was he saying? These guys weren't dynamically used of God because of who they were. They were dynamically used of God because they had, had literally, they had a, a relationship with God in prayer, and then they began to command the power of God. In other words, God used them in an amazing way. When you read about these guys' lives, man, it's, it's challenging. These people knew God. These people prayed and sought the face of God. Do you know why prayer is so powerful? Why it's so necessary? I'll tell you why. Prayer is the evidence that we're depending on God. And prayer is an expression of humility. When you realize you can't do it, when you understand you have nothing to offer, when you realize it's only God who can change people's lives, you are forced to depend on Almighty God. And you know what the Bible teaches us? Same book, book of James or even Peter. You know, it says God resists whom? The proud. And what does he do to the humble? He gives them grace. What's grace, folks? Free gift. Free, free you know, endowments. The blessing of God. Do you want the blessing? How many say, I want the blessing of God in my life? You know, my prayer is, God, help me to walk humbly before you. What am I praying for? Lord, I want to walk in dependence on you. I want to walk, you know, trusting in you, not in myself, not in other people, not in my academic background. I'm not trusting those things. You know, those are all nice things, but you don't, that's not what's going to bring about transformation in people's lives. Only the presence of the living God can change people. I'm aware of that. And, that's, and I'm aware that we're not going to impact our city apart from the presence of God. How many know that? I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what kind of programs you run. That's not going to change people's lives. You know, listen, you can build a great church. You can have all kinds of programming, but people's lives stay the same. I'm not interested in that. You know what I'm interested in? Change lives. I'm interested in transformed lives. I'm interested in people really connecting to Almighty God. I'm interested in God encountering you. I'm interested in God bringing about transformation in your life. I'm interested in God doing a work of grace in your soul. I'm interested in seeing you and me both become more like Jesus. That's what I'm interested in. And that's what's going to impact our community, that we're going to reflect the glory of God. When people look at us, they're going to be able to look at us and see something different about us. You know, years ago, when I was, you know, I was just a teenager, and I was encountering God in a very powerful way. My grandmother said, "You know what?" You know, my aunt was actually visiting my grandmother, and she, my aunt, made a comment. She said, "You know, Paul, I can actually see Christ in you." My grandmother made some cute comment, but you know, what what was she saying? She was actually seeing the presence of God in another person's life. That's a very powerful statement. That's what God wants to see happen in our lives. That there's change occurring within us. But let me move to the second insight from Jesus' prayer. This is not only where transformation is revealed, but that's where our mission is affirmed. God's purposes for our lives is revealed to us as we are in communion with Him. You know, I'm deeply concerned today that a lot of young people especially, you know, are planning their lives. And even older people, we're making decisions and planning our lives based on what we think is best. Listen to what the Scripture says in Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end it leads to death. I am so convinced today that most of us, when we make a decision, think we're making the right decision. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. How many go, that's probably true? As Christians, you know, we're making these decisions, and we think we're always making the right decisions. It's only in hindsight, looking back, that we can take a hard look and say, you know, that wasn't the right decision. I can see the fruit of it now. At the time, I thought it was the right decision. You know, we can all be led astray, folks, We have a cunning adversary. And you know what's really tragic? A lot of us are pursuing the wrong goals. I've just been listening to some lectures by some scholars on the life of St. Augustine. And it's from his book, Confessions. And Confessions isn't he's confessing his sins, so that's probably a part of it. He's really confessing his faith in Christ. And in this, he tells the story of how he's disappointed by his educational background. You need to understand that Augustine was probably one of the most well-educated people in his time, You know, he was right up there. He was actually training the people who were leading the empire. He was a rhetorician, you know, which would really be the people who are training the top leaders for the nation. He was a very gifted communicator. He was a brilliant philosopher, but he wasn't a Christian. His mother was and he goes back to tell how when he was growing up, he said his teachers were literally teaching him the ABCs, how to be successful in life. And isn't that kind of what every parent wants for the kids, that their kids be successful in life and they're able to make a living and all the rest of it? But he said, that's not a good enough education. The real education is teaching people what's really important in life and that we have an understanding of who the true and the living God is and that we're living correctly before Him and we're walking in that kind of wisdom. That's the real education that everybody needs. And he was bemoaning the fact that his parents didn't provide it for him. None of his teachers did. And it wasn't until, you know, difficulty and poor choices and, you know, he's finally 31 years old when he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And then his life really took off. Why am I saying all of this? Because we need to understand what our purpose is in life. You know what I would say to young people today? You know, a lot of young people are choosing jobs based on how much they're going to get paid. Come on now. That's all the choices they're making. But what we need to be saying is, God, you created me. You've designed me for a purpose. Lord, I want to know your will. I want to do your will. Do we actually pray that, Lord, help me to know and do your will? Do you know what I said about Jesus? He only did what the Father wanted him to do, and he only said what the Father wanted him to say. That's that's actually the perfect life. God, what is it you want me to do? What is it you want me to say? How do you want me to handle the situation, Lord? What do you want me to say to this person today? When people come, you know, to me, I have to say, Lord, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the answer man. You know, you have the answer. What do you want me as your servant to say or do? You know, I don't want to just come out of my head. I don't want to just say things for, for not, because I want people to really experience God. God will reveal his purposes to us if we are in his presence. We will un, we'll discover it. Listen to what it says, Luke chapter 9, verse 30. It says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which is really his death, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Think of the significance of these two people. Moses, there on the mountain. Where was the mountain? It was in the land of Israel. It was in the promised land. Now, how many know that Moses never made the promised land? Do you know your Old Testament history? He came up, he had sinned against God. God says, Moses, because you did this, you will not enter the promised land. But I believe that there's a deeper truth there. And I love what G. Campbell Morgan says in his book, The Crisis of the Christ. He says, centuries had passed, and at last he stood within the land, not having won his way into it by the laws given to him on Mount Sinai, but by the infinite grace of God as manifested in the person of his son, with whom he now talked with. What is he saying? Let me just simplify it for us. What law could not do, grace found a way. Law could not bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. How many know Moses died? Moses represents the law. How many know God says another's going to bring them in? Who brought them into the promised land back in the early centuries? Joshua. Do you know the name Joshua in Hebrew is what in Greek? Jesus. Jesus. How many think that's an amazing thought? As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews takes that thought and tells us it's Jesus that brings us into our promised land. It's the grace of God that helps us to receive what God has promised for us. So the keeping of the law will not do it. It will never cut it. Do you know what the law does? The law only shows us our frailties, our inabilities, and our sinfulness. It's not a bad thing. It reveals our true condition. As a matter of fact, most of us are blind to our true condition. I would think we all think of ourselves as better than we really are, including myself. You say, why do you think that? Because we have to live with ourselves. And so we justify and we rationalize and we do all kinds of things. But you know what? When we're in the presence of the true and the living God and he shines his light on us, all of a sudden we're like Isaiah who was a prophet and a holy man in the presence of God? And he says, Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Let me tell you something. Can you imagine standing in absolute purity, in absolute truth, absolute beauty, absolute everything? And when you stand in the presence of a person like that, you're going you're to recognize all your deficiencies real fast. It's the truth. And at that moment, we're going to say, I need God's grace, I need God's favor. I need God's forgiveness. I need God's mercy. I need God's kindness. You know what? I don't think I've ever shared this thought. You know when I was, I think I was about 10 years old, and I got a Gideon Bible. Maybe I was in grade five, grade four, whatever. What grade did they give those things out anyways? Grade five, okay. I was in that grade, and I was looking at this little Bible, and I took it home, and I read the back, and it was a prayer to receive Christ, and it says, if you pray this prayer, then sign your name here and date it. And I did it. You know? So, I mean, God has always been at work in my life. I can look back and see all these moments God's hand was touching me. One night, I had a dream. I don't, I don't pay a lot of stock by dreams, but this night, I, was, I had died, and I was on my way to heaven. And I, was, I saw all of these different, kind of like beautiful stairs heading to the same place, and all these people were all walking upwards towards heaven and as i was walking up towards heaven i kept saying i don't deserve this i don't deserve this i don't deserve this and folks that's true none of us deserve it it's god's grace that gets us there What a profound thing. And so Moses represents the law. And then we we come to the other character there who's Elijah, who represents what? The prophets, the ones who are calling the people back to obeying the law. And Elijah represents them. And again, Morgan describes the nature of these two representatives. They're chatting with Jesus on the holy mountain. He said the religion in which they were so deeply interested in was about to be changed and not destroyed. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, "I I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to what? I came to fulfill the law. I am the answer to what the law calls for. You see, what we want to do is destroy the law, do we not? And by the way, isn't that what we're doing in our culture today? We're destroying morality and we're destroying the law. And Jesus did not come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. He came to make it realized in Him. And so when you and I put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the reason why we're freed from the Old Testament law is that we're living at a higher level. You see, we're living under the law of love now. And if you really love someone, you'll never do what the law forbids you to do. You see, if you live in grace, you will actually love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said the law can be encapsulated in two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. When you experience the grace of God, you will do both those things. And that's how you know you've experienced the grace of God. You will have a love for God. You know, if I don't have a love for God, I would say to you, you're in trouble. You've never received Christ. You've never experienced God's grace. Because the moment you experience God's grace, your desires change. You have a new desire for God. You have a love for God that you've never had before. Because before you had no thought of God. Now your heart moves towards God. You long for the things above. You have a new appetite. You've been transformed. You've become a new creation. You've moved from the, you know, the caterpillar to now the butterfly situation. You are a new creation. You are a different person. It's not, it doesn't mean you never fail. It doesn't mean you never falter. But something has changed within you. It says in Jerusalem they were fighting over all these things about you know how much should we tithe. And, you know, it's always an interesting question when people ask me this kind of stuff. I'm going, guys, get beyond all that stuff, you know. Why are these even an issue? Why is any of this stuff an issue? If we really love God, wouldn't we be giving him everything we are? 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wouldn't we be giving our full selves to him? But if we're not doing that, there's a problem. There's something wrong that needs to be changed. And I'm suggesting to you that when you're in God's presence, that's when the changes start happening. The law with its commands, its forbiddings, was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And the lawgiver Moses, by the will of God, had left the heavenly places to greet upon the Mount of Transfiguration the one who in his own person had magnified the law. Do you know Jesus was actually the one that kept the law? No one has ever kept the law except Jesus. Did you know that? He's the only real law keeper. All those people that I go when I go to Jerusalem and I see them bowing down and praying and doing all the stuff they're doing, you know, all these people that are keeping the Torah, the law, they're not keeping it perfectly. There's only one who ever did. His name is Jesus. And so you and I will never be able to keep the law. By nature, we're lawbreakers. Do you know that? By nature, you're a rebel. By nature, you want autonomy from God. By nature, you want to do your own thing. It's true of all of us. God has to change us fundamentally. It's a deep work. Just as the mission of Christ was being reinstated, not only to encourage him, but to reveal to the disciples the means by which this grace would come. They were talking about the cross. You know, just before that experience, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Beautiful. Who do men say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? Peter stood up and said, you're the Messiah. What did Jesus say to him? He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. You've had an insight from God. What a profound thing. Do you know we have to have a revelation? If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you have been given a gift to have a revelation to understand this. God has revealed himself to you. In the next breath, Jesus starts talking about going to the cross, having to die for man's sins. What does Peter say? Not so, Lord. This is not the way of it. You see, they had a dream that Israel would be elevated as a nation, the Messiah would come and be a king, that they would all be political leaders in the new regime. Jesus goes, that's not the right way. That's not, that's not how my kingdom works. As a matter of fact, it's a death to self. That's the kind of kingdom I'm offering. And he said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, Peter wasn't Satan. But what Peter was saying, just as he had gotten that revelation from the Father, now he was getting, you know, he was actually the spokesperson for the me, You know, and Jesus said, listen, that's not the way it's gonna happen. I'm gonna have to die. As a matter of fact, his kingdom would be spiritual and its glory would only come after terrible suffering. As we read here in... um, Hebrews chapter 5 it says during the days of Jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission although he was a son he learned obedience by what he suffered and once made perfect that, that word perfect means once his purpose was accomplished he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him I always ask the question if Christ had to learn obedience and he was perfect through which he suffered, do I have to learn obedience? You know, how do how do children learn obedience? They have to be disciplined. If you don't discipline, they don't learn obedience. How many know there's a lot of non obedient children? That just tells me parents aren't disciplining their kids. That's all I know. See, I'm not stupid. I just equate things really quickly. I'm going, okay, well, this is what's happening, especially when you just see these kids out of control. You know, you just go, and and you can see the parents. There's kind of a laissez-faire attitude. They just don't really care. I'm going, what are you doing? You can't let a child, you know, dominate the household. You know, I had a very strong-willed second child named Rachel. I didn't say this this morning. She was here, you know. But she was strong-willed. And you know what? I said, listen, she's not going to dominate our house. She's not going to be the leader. She's not going to tell the rest of us how to live. She's going to fit in. She's going to follow our rules. We're going to structure her. We're going to discipline her. And we did. And She turned out to be a beautiful young woman. You know, I just love her with all my heart. Very disciplined, structured young person because she was disciplined. But we didn't beat her. We didn't hurt her. But we curbed her. You know, we made sure she didn't just have her way. She just wasn't going to do her thing. We weren't going to jump to when she cried and did her stuff. We just didn't allow that to happen. You know, as a matter of fact, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, what happened? I went astray. But now, after I was afflicted, after God chastised me, after God disciplined me, it says what? I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. You know, none of us like this, what I'm talking about now. You know what we don't like is the cross. We don't like that, you know. But it's in the presence of God that our lives were affirmed and validated. When we live, we live, I believe, in a world of competing and conflicting values. Isn't that the truth? How many know we're living in a conflicted world? And there's all these conflicted values going on. So, God's ways are not our ways, To be in step with God generally means we're out of step with those who don't know God. How many know that's true? They have a different value system. I'll give you an example. You know, money versus people. What's the highest value in our culture? Money or people? Quickly. Money. Money. How do you know? Listen to every political speech, it's all about the economy. We don't care about the people. As long as they fit in and make the economy work, we're happy. Really, it's about people, folks. God, it's all about people. Isn't that true? It is. God is about people. You know, a few weeks ago I preached about the, you know, the demon-possessed man and eventually the demons went into the herd of pigs. People are upset. 2,000 pigs died. One man is now in his right mind. And people are upset. Jesus, please don't come here. We don't need this kind of a situation. You're affecting the economy. Right? That's right. He'll challenge us. Jesus will challenge us. Believe me, he will. Let me move on to the third insight, and I'll close with this. It's the confirmation of God's purpose in our lives. Not only does he affirm that purpose, but then he confirms it by others who hear it and embrace what we are saying and doing. Do you know You know when you're in God's purposes for your life is people will actually begin to affirm that you're doing exactly what you should be doing. Look, at, look what happens here in verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then there's a little parenthetical thought in brackets. I always love the parenthetical thoughts. He did not know what he was saying. You know? Isn't that true most of our time in our lives? We have this amazing encounter with God. We start babbling. We start saying stuff. We say a lot of stupid things. And it's not what it's all about. We make the wrong analysis. And then it says, while he was speaking, I love this, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. You know, while Peter's talking, God says, excuse me, Peter, I'm going to say something now. You know? Isn't it kind of wise we just kind of be quiet when God's talking? You know? A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God the Father was affirming his life. He was confirming his purpose. He was explaining. Jesus knows the right means, method, way of doing things. You know, this final, so uh, the final time this word for change and transformation is used is found in the book of Romans chapter 12. I love this text. You know what it says? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, can I just straighten this out on worship? You know, I love singing. I'm a singer. I I just love praising God through singing. But that's only this much of worship. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna tell you, if you don't give your full body to God 24-7, 365 days of the week, you're not a worshiper. You see, worship isn't singing. Worship is more than singing. That's just a reflection and an aspect of it. True worship is giving your body to God, your mind to God, your will to God, your life to God, your ambition to God, your decisions to God. That's true worship. You go past, you've just wrecked my definition of what I thought worship was. This is the biblical definition, okay? But let me go on to say this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's this world? God says, love not the world, neither the things that are in it. What are those things? The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. In other words, don't get confused on these values. That's what he's saying. here. Don't don't, don't, uh, be squeezed into that mold, but be transformed, be changed, be transfigured by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, when you do God's will, you're worshiping. Do you know sometimes doing God's will is hard? we figured that out? Sometimes it's not what you want. Sometimes you go, I don't really want this to be the will of God for me. We can resist it. We can be frustrated with it. Do you know, is there a cross that we must carry? I'm just raising it as a question. If we're going to really impact other people's lives, is there a cost to it? You know, some people say, you know what, Jesus paid it all. You don't have to suffer because Jesus suffered for you. How many have ever heard that theology? Yeah, it's out there. But Let me just shatter that for a moment because I think that's false teaching. You go, why is that? Well, let me point it out to you. Look what Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must find true fulfillment in life. Doesn't it say that? Isn't that what I hear all the time from people? Listen, pastor, I believe God wants me to be happy. I believe God wants me to be ultimately fulfilled. It doesn't say that. What's it say? Did I type in that wrong? Look it up in your Bible. He says what? He must deny himself and take up his cross. Does anybody know what a cross is? Well, yeah, it's a little bracelet that's passed. we hanging around our neck. It's usually made of silver or gold. No, wrong answer. In the day of Jesus, a cross was a cruel instrument that put people to death. What is he saying? He says you're going to have to die to yourself. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me you know sometimes when things bug me i go paul you ain't crucified that bothered you i go you're right lord i'm not dead there's still a little me left here i gotta die to my my little desire oh it's always painful isn't it that hurt you know isn't that what he's telling us here Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses it for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, you can gain everything the world has to offer, and at the end you have nothing left of who you truly were designed and meant to be by God. You can have all the fame, all the fortune, all the money. You can have everything going for you, and you can be absolutely empty. And I can tell you there's a lot of people today who have fame and fortune and who are absolutely empty. And then there are people who doesn't seem to have anything going for them. They have all kinds of challenges in their life, but they're happy doing God's will. And when you look at them, these are the true people that have really gained what life has to offer, what God has to offer. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Listen, I don't want to be that person. Where God says, you were ashamed of me, I don't know you. That's stark. That's, you go, that's harsh, Pastor. I'm going, no, that's the way it works. We have to identify with Jesus, folks. You know, you say, well, you know, Paul... The apostle, obviously, he had to suffer. You know, my experience, uh, well, I already say, some don't, we say we don't need to experience this because Christ did it on our behalf. Yet, as we look at a careful look at scripture, we realize we have to experience the cross life too. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul's calling was like. When Ananias laid his hands on him, God had spoken to him and he said, listen, he's gonna be my chosen instrument. He's gonna carry my name before Gentiles and kings, before the people of Israel. And then he says this, I wish he hadn't said this but I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name you know I remember when I was a young person seeking I said God I want to do your will I don't know what it is I went up into a mountain retreat had five days God spoke to me I fasted and prayed and everywhere I looked in scripture God kept saying you're going to have to suffer you're going to have to suffer I go I don't want to hear this this is not the message I want to hear I came here to find out what you wanted for my life and God kept telling me no you're going to have to suffer But you see, God was preparing me. He was preparing me with the right mindset, the right attitude, the right understanding of the gospel, the right understanding of scripture because not too long after that, when I finally went to Bible college, when I finally started studying the word of God, the great prosperity message came out in full bloom and I knew immediately that was a false message. Because listen to what it goes on to say. Paul, you say, well, this is Paul. This is Jesus. These guys, you know, yeah, they're leaders. All of you leaders, you have to suffer to help us poor people out. But listen to what Paul says to the people when he returns back to these various communities he's preached in, like Lystra, like Iconium and Antioch. In Acts 14, 22, it says he strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. And then he said this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Hey, folks, hardship. What's that word mean to you? Difficulty, problems, right? There's going to be challenges. You say, well, that's just Paul's message. What did Jesus have to say? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have what? Trouble. Trouble. You know what? I love those little promise boxes. Anybody ever seen them? You pull them out and you read your promise. I don't even know if this promise is in a promise box. If it did, they probably wouldn't sell as good because you know you'd want to put this promise right back in the box right in the world you'll have trouble that's a promise I want God no you would never nobody in their right mind wants trouble listen I want to avoid trouble as much as the next person but I recognize in life there's trouble how many have kind of figured that out if you've lived for a little while have you anybody here experience any trouble in life Has there been any difficulties in life? Have there been any moments of misunderstanding? Have there been moments of challenge in your life? Anybody have those kind of experiences? Jesus said they're going to happen. But he said, be of good cheer. Why? Take heart, he says. I've overcome the world. Listen, how you handle your troubles is you do it with Jesus. And what I'm saying to us as Christians here tonight, and primarily I'm speaking to Christians, and I know that. And if you're not a Christian, you want to embrace this. You want to receive Christ. Because Jesus will help you through your trouble. Jesus will give you the strength to get through the trouble. Jesus will give you peace in the midst of your trouble. Jesus will help you when everything around is raging and everybody else is falling apart and you're just kind of standing there going, I don't believe this. I have a peace. I have a confidence. I have an assurance. I have a hope. I have strength. All through the trouble. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's the picture that Jesus gives to us. You know? I love that beautiful print, you know, there's a guy standing in the lighthouse and the storm and the water swirling around the lighthouse and everywhere around him there's a huge storm and there he's sheltered in the lighthouse. How many have ever seen that print? I like that one. Why? What is it saying? It's saying when you're in Christ, you're sheltered from the battering storms of life. You're, you're nestled in that refuge. You found a secure place to stand in the midst of the storm. Well, let me have us. i am I'm gonna close now and have a stand tonight and just close with this time of prayer together. Maybe we're here tonight. You just say, Pastor, wow, this is such an interesting message. What am I saying to us? I'm saying how many here would like to be changed? How many here feel like, you know what, I like to be more like Jesus. I got my hand up. I wanna be like him. I want to be like Jesus. What am I saying tonight? It happens in the place of prayer. Did you hear that tonight? As Jesus prayed, he was changed. As Jesus prayed, he was transformed. As Jesus prayed, he was transfigured. As you and I pray, we are changed. You know, I was on a vacation a number of years ago. And I was complaining You guys never do this, you know, but, you know, I grew up, remember I was telling you I had kind of an interesting early beginnings and, you know, I had grown up feeling a little self-pity. None of you ever have self-pity, but I grew up with a lot of self-pity and I had to overcome self-pity because I found out as a young person, the only that person that joined me was usually Satan. He kept pouring the tea party, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I usually say this, you know, if you're going to the bars because you feel sorry for yourself, Satan will keep pouring the drinks. And you can wallow in that self-pity. And we have all kinds of you know, nice terms for it today, and we have all kinds of medical terms for why people do what they do. But let me just tell you this. You can keep doing that, and you can stay in that state and frame of mind, and it'll, it'll kill you. Or you can allow, you know, being in God's presence, because I'm a habitual Bible reader and a prayer. You know, God can speak into your life. And when you're in that mode, God's speaking. Here I was complaining. Listen to this. I'm on vacation in Vancouver. The weather's beautiful. I'm sitting on a beach. How can I be complaining? Right? How many think that's pretty nice? Pastor, what's wrong with you? You know, but I was complaining. I was bemoaning my situation. You know what? The Holy Spirit said, knock it off. Smarten up. I'm reading Psalm 16. God says, I have blessed you, I have given you a delightful inheritance. My blessings have fallen, you know, my inheritance, my blessings have fallen to you in pleasant places. You're focused on the wrong thing. I want you to just start focusing on what I've done for you. I want want you to focus in on my grace in the way I've blessed your life. And I said, God, forgive me. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I got this little epiphany. You know how God, you know, sometimes puts things in your mind. You never forget these things. And here's the thought that came, and I wrote it in my journal. Here it comes. If you do not have it, you don't need it. And if you need it, you'll get it. What do you think of that thought? If you do not have it, you don't need it. And if you really need it, I'm your loving father. You'll have it. I'll give it to you at the right moment. I said, okay, Lord. I'm content with that. See, God was dealing with me. Why am I saying that? When you're in a place of prayer, God changes you. How many have ever been in a moment of prayer and you came full with hurt hurt or brokenness or anxiety or frustration or anger and you're praying and you're pouring out your heart to God and all of a sudden as you're praying, peace comes over your soul. All of a sudden your thinking starts changing. All of a sudden hope starts welling up inside of you. All of a sudden there's a quiet confidence. You know what? God's going to take care of this. And you walk out of that spot and where moments before there was brokenness and hurt and, you know, disappointment or, you know, you didn't know what to do. And now you get up and you go, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. All I know now is I have a peace that God is going to take care of it. What's happened? God's changed you. God has changed you in that place of prayer. is that beautiful? So, Lord... We lift our hands before you. We're candidates for change in our lives. And we know that it can only happen when we're communing with you. And I pray tonight that you'll forgive us, Lord, where we have lacked that intimacy with you, that lack of relationship, that lack of communion, and we've allowed the pressures and the demands and the, the discontentments of our lives to drive us to places where we have been unlike you. We've been impatient. We've been demanding. We've been angry, we've been disappointed, we've been filled with doubt. But now, Lord, as we're standing in your presence tonight, I pray that your glorious grace would flood our souls. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring peace to our troubled hearts. I pray tonight, Father, that you'd put hope where there's been no hope, that there's been despair. I pray, fill us with your hope. Lord, I thank you for your amazing grace. I pray, Lord, strengthen us. Give us a passion, a desire, a longing, a delight in your presence, Lord, that we would enjoy you above everyone else, Lord, that we would find ourselves slipping away to prayer, that we would find ourselves longing for you more and more in our daily lives, Lord, deeper degrees of intimacy than ever before, Father, greater sense of encouragement, strength, and hope filling our lives because you're changing us from glory to glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.